Ask any coach who has run any drill. There's always one child, one player who manages to mess it up for whatever reason. We call them drill killers. But in development programs, we also have killers. Development killers. I'm Richard Berkison, and this is Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show podcast. There are three statements that define development killers, and each covers from a different angle or point of view. To discuss and analyze these, I welcome back Dean Holden from Calgary, a frequent guest here on the podcast. Dean is completing his PhD in coaching. He has coached pretty much every level of minor, junior, and pro, and has witnessed development killers firsthand. Dean, welcome back to Grassroots. Thanks, Richard. Let's tackle these one by one. The objective being, and I apologize to Maudie Python and the dead parrot skit, but the objective is to make these development killer statements dead, defunct, to make them no more, to make them cease to be, to make them bereft of life, that they will kick the bucket, they will shuffle off their mortal coil. We need to make them ex-development killers. Classic. I think we just end it right there. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Well done. All right. Here's the first one. I played junior. Wow. That's um, so simple. Um, and I think if I played junior. The first thing I think about when I hear that, and I have heard that, or he's played junior, or I've played junior, and it's really much... Uh, you know, the I've played junior reflects a first person point of view, um, suggesting that uh, because of that, that automatically means that that person has knowledge, skills, and credibility, and they're going to do it the way that they were taught when they played junior, which, you know, could have been a year or two ago, it could have been 10 or 20 years ago. And uh, just because somebody played junior doesn't necessarily mean it was always a positive experience for that person or the other people. So why do we automatically assume and um, provide credibility to that statement? Um, because on its surface, that's to me what it suggests is just that automatically I should be granted some sort of credibility or accreditation because I played junior. Uh, I don't think that it necessarily translates effectively 100% because oftentimes this is a show dealing with minor hockey and oftentimes um, I play junior then suggests that okay, maybe then if we're putting it into the age level and skill level of junior, you now have an appreciation for what it's like in junior. So maybe what you experienced has more relevance. But just by the fact that you played junior and now you're going to go back and coach initiation program and be five, 10 to 20 years removed from your junior experience doesn't necessarily mean uh, you, you should be granted that automatic um, credential that your, your coaching approach is going to be successful because kids are not mini adults. When somebody makes that statement or somebody around them, here's somebody make that statement and they give credence 
to that statement. I played junior or I played in the East Coast League or I played in Denmark or, you know, anything above uh, minor hockey. That giving credence to the statement and giving credence to the background suggests a fundamental lack of understanding of what junior sport or pro sport or minor pro sport is about. Also, a fundamental lack of understanding of what children are about in a minor hockey world, which is a very, um, a very self-contained cocoon, whereas the junior world is wide open. You know, it, you can pretty much do what you want. Uh, it, it's just not, they just don't follow at all. Yeah, I think it's a very much, um, it's an oversimplification that statement, um, it's, it, it fails to recognize the specialized depth of knowledge that you're going to need in order to be able to be a success to coach children and to relate on their terms and to see the game through their eyes. I would much rather have a person say, I just played with my Spirograph or my Lego. Spirograph? These- Did you say Spirograph? I am trying to bring back Spirograph. Okay. I don't have shares in the company, but I remember I used to love it. And uh, it's creative. There's boundaries. But within those boundaries, you can still create a lot of different colors and shapes and express yourself. And like I say, there's still boundaries. So just that, that analogy itself, I mean, in minor hockey, we have to have some boundaries. And like you said, in junior, it's, it's maybe it's more wide open. It's not as, um, I don't know what you would call it, like policed or oversaw or oversight or whatever, but it's, um, it's a big difference from what the kids are, are, are needing and what they're wanting and how they're relating. And in order to be successful with the, the, the in minor hockey, I, and probably in all hockey, you need to have better emotional intelligence than, than a lot of the, um, the methods that people are employing now. But I think the fact that it just, it, if you're going to play with a Lego or a Spirograph, it just shows you can relate on that level. And I think we need to make sure our coaches understand, like at the youngest levels, you don't need to have all these fancy drills and systems and strategies. You really need to understand how people and children in specific uh, learn and, and what, what should be your teaching approach. And it's not the stereotypical, well, I played junior because to me, when I look back at junior, I've got guys wearing fedoras, smoking cigars in the dressing room just because of my age. And I think that statement can mean different things to people of different eras. So even, even, even today um, I was speaking with a guy who's coached in um, all three junior leagues across Canada over um, about a 20 year period. And he said, I, Dean, you wouldn't believe the difference in the kids, same age, junior age kids. And it's not a regional thing across leagues. It's in a geographic thing. It's a, it's an age thing based on how long I've been in the game. I cannot believe how much the kids have changed from that, you know, 17 to 20 year old era just across 20 years. He said like, you know, you can almost look at every five or 10 years, there's been a major shift. 
So just because somebody says they played junior, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to relate. I do have to say, though, that I hear less and less of that. But I do know of people who have fallen back on their experiences at minor pro or junior levels or professional levels uh, in their coaching, figuring that the kinds of approaches you would take, not just the kinds of drills, but the kinds of approaches you would take with, with children of whatever age, nine-year-olds, more inclined with 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds with young teenagers, that the approach you take with them has to be closer to the junior experience that you might have had, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And yes, the kids have changed, but the game has changed. And back to my original point, it just displays a very narrow mindset. Uh, I, I used to see it in coaching clinics a lot back in the 80s and 90s um, when you would sit in their coaching clinic and people had to get whatever level they needed to coach a certain uh, age group. And when you would ask a question, well, back in when I played junior and right away, you know, what's coming next. You know, we used to do these gut busters, suicide drills. And I went, yes. what's that got to do with the 14 year olds? And I've seen this, I've seen these, these suicide drills with eight, nine year olds with 13 and 14 year olds. Because somebody said to these coaches, if you do that for three minutes, they're going to get in shape. First of all, you don't understand conditioning. Number one, you don't understand the age group. You don't understand that what you did in junior, rightly or wrongly, is, I would say, com almost completely inappropriate for minor hockey. I agree. I think it's the term itself. It just... It almost to me suggests a closed mindedness, like a fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset. And you said, I've, I've, I've experienced this too as a facilitator in coaching clinics where mm. uh, you get there and you can look at the people and you can get to kind of see, uh, you know, the coach sitting back, the arms, arms folded over the throat, chest, yes. they, mm. they tilt back from you. They kind of give you the, you know, they look at you and they look away or they give you the eye roll. And, and, and I even will ask them, like, how many of you, you know, honestly, I said, I'm not going to hold anything against you. How many of you here honestly want to be here as opposed to have to be here to get your certification? Because I know I've been in your spot. I, I know what it's like to have some, some person stand up at the bully pulpit up front and dispense their wisdom that they're told they need to uh, fill you up like an empty vessel so that you can move forward and go preach the gospel of, you know, insert federation here. And now you know it all and you're good, you're done. And you don't, you never have to come back to, to repeat or, or refresh that level. Um, so I understand exactly what you're saying. And I think that it's, it does represent that. Um, I know it all mentality, perhaps in, in some people, I mean, not all, I mean, I, I've had some, some people that play junior and pro that, are definitely curious and, and interested and want to be there and they'll sit at the front and they'll ask questions and they'll come up and they'll engage. But the people we're speaking of here typically are the ones that, you know, how far away from the front can I sit? Can I sit near the exit to get out quick? You know, there's a flip side to this too, though, Dean, uh, that I've, I've seen uh, particularly at coaching clinics or coaching seminars or get togethers or meetings of coaches where the people who played at a particularly high level, 
which to me is anything beyond minor hockey. If you play college, junior, you know, minor pro, um, that there's a minority of those in the room generally, but the people who have not played at a higher level are very much intimidated by the fact that Bill over there, Sam over there played a higher level. Therefore, they are certainly more capable of answering that question that was posed at the front of the room about, you know, uh, uh, what's, what's a favorite way to teach turns with pucks that, that includes a shot. And they won't offer up their ideas, which may be perfectly valid, because they played house league as think, opposed to the person who played at that higher level. No, I agree. And I, I think that is all, that almost becomes a um, partially a, a, a reflects on the facilitator skills and how, how well can you quickly connect with the group and then draw it out of them. Because I, I mean, culturally in North America, what I've noticed is hockey coaches by and large, like they're a competitive group and just culturally, there's, there seems to be less of an inclination to share your, your, your hard-earned secrets of how to coach and teach. Um, you know, so I'm speaking about those that have got a little bit of a background in coaching and teaching, not the, the first timers that just go in there wide-eyed or rolling of the eyes because I played junior. So it's, it's almost a little bit of a sideline. But, um, you know, when I look at some of the other countries I've been in, um, Scandinavia really does an amazing job of sharing all their techniques, all their struggles, all their successes um, within the coaching community over there. It's much more of a collaboration, a partnership on a countrywide level, you know, and, and, and that covers everything like age and level all the way up. I, I haven't seen and felt that here in North America. And, and like I've only been facilitating since probably the um, early nineties, you know, I've got a little bit of the body of work, but um, you know, not as much as you, but I, I, I don't detect that um, normally that sharing and collaborative mindset in some of these clinics, like you say, it could be intimidation because they didn't play pro and there's somebody who, you know, they know played pro in the room or they tell people they played pro or I played junior and, depending on how they phrase that, it could be intimidating. There are fewer and fewer of those individuals, I find, after teaching the program. You've been teaching it for like 25 years. And, uh, you know, once you get up to above 20 years or 15 years of teaching these programs, whether you've taught 15 or 35, it doesn't matter. You've seen the same kinds of issues that, that we've all experienced. And uh, I, I fall back to a number of of NHLers or former NHLers that I've had in coaching clinics who obviously have life experiences that are vastly different from mine. I've never played pro hockey. Uh, and um, their skill level is obviously vastly different from mine. That's for sure. But I fall back to one example that for me crystallizes the entire discussion of I played junior as being an excuse for doing various things. Some years ago during the NHL lockout, uh, I was in Ottawa and some members of the Ottawa Senators wanted to get coaching certification because their kids were nine years old, I think at the time. So a bunch of them uh, got together with me in a, a secret room at the uh, arena because they weren't allowed to be in the building actually. And the GM at the time, the late Brian Murray 
um, didn't even know they were going to be there. The team president uh, was allowing them in there. So I held a development one coaching clinic and, and one of the guys in the room, there were a few members of the Ottawa senators in there, but one of them was Daniel Alfredson, who in my view is perhaps a, a future hall of famer for various reasons. Daniel Alfredson was told by his dad, because he and his brother Henrik was a, an officer in the Ottawa police force. Um, Daniel said that his dad had impressed upon him the importance of getting certification. Of if you're going to coach your sons, he's got, I think, four boys at the time. If you're going to coach your kids, you have to be certified. You have to be trained. It's not the same as you playing at all, at all. And the, his dad had coached him when he was a kid. So Daniel came into the clinic and, and he had brilliant answers to the questions. He was posing good questions himself, such as, why do Canadian kids play so many games and so few practices? A question, of course, I could not answer. But if ever there was an example of somebody who could throw up his hand and say, well, I play pro. You know, we were talking about differences on, on a team of, at one point. Uh, skill level differences on a team of, you know, 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds. You have the ninth forward and you have the first forward. He says, we have the same thing in the NHL. I'm nearly 40 years old at the time. And I've got guys who are 19 and 20 years old on the same team. You know, there's a little bit of a culture difference there. You know, I've got four children, the 19 and 20 year olds, you know, if they go to the United States, can't drink in most states because they're too young. So, you know, and he, he kept saying, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Oh, he was a wonderful statement. student. What a, what a great example of the I play junior statement being pretty much nonsensical. A very positive way. Yeah, yes. very insightful and self-aware way. And, and I mean, you know, perhaps, he, like I said, culturally, it comes back to maybe the Scandinavian mindset a little bit from what I've yes. experienced. You yeah, know, limited. Um, you know, it might just be a tremendous father who had that insight that was passing it along to Daniel. And I, it's funny you say that story because I, I've heard um, similar stories about Alfredson, um, you know, and just from people that I know that have coached him and, and been around him, um, just, you know, really a, a good person all very through. impressive like, yeah you know, not just on a, on, on a statistical point of view but a good person right, right. which is i understand i understand too that he's a very good ping pong player i heard that from another source and i always took pride in my ping pong abilities and i would love to play him but of course it would be non-contact you need to issue a challenge yes Maybe you can do it for yeah. a, a yeah. charity all right. Uh, statement number two, development killers. Here's one for you, Dean. He knows the game. What does, uh, what does that mean to you? He knows the game. Oh, good Lord. Um, yeah. <laughs> Where do you go with that one? I mean, it's funny because the, the whole topic itself, I mean, it's, it's like listening to a, post-game um, sports reporters scrum, you know, when they trot the, the coach and the players out. I mean, nowadays on Zoom with the pandemic, but before that, you know, everybody's jostling to get their digital recorders into the face of whoever. And, you know, well, you know, the power play wasn't so good. Uh, you know, um, all the questions that come after a, a tough game and uh, you get all the cliches and platitudes tossed out by the, 
by the um, the athletes and the coaches. You know, well, we gotta we gotta do better at this. You know, we'll get them next time. Um, you know, and, and basically those things, it just shows a lack of insight. Um, you know, and they're they're unoriginal, and they're they're just oversimplifications. Uh, you know, they're just dodging they're dodging the real the real question. They're do, they're they're dodging what potentially could be a real answer. Um, I think from that perspective, I mean, now you're talking more, like you say, on the board level, um, you know, you've had some programs about uh, coach uh, interviewing with um, Rick LaDuker. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I I just love that one because he was insulted with some of them and he came across genuinely insulted as well. He should have been with some of them. He was insulted with the script, I think. Well, I think think so. (laughs) And, uh, but, but that's good. Um, you, You know, and I think that it just, it trivializes the importance of deeply understanding the game, the role of the coach, how how kids at different ages learn differently. So I think that statements like this, again, we've talked about, they, they reflect perhaps a fixed mindset or I, I couldn't be bothered to, to think more deeply about it. And, and maybe at the board level, it's just, you know, it gives them an easy out because a lot of times the people on the board you know, they're, they're well-intentioned volunteers, but they don't perhaps have the deep um, playing experience, the deep coaching or teaching experience, and even, even experience being on a board. I mean, often, I mean, you're elected to these positions for the most part. And if somebody doesn't fill them, well, who can, who's the warm body that can come in and try and do something. So it just reflects kind of that um, superficiality. Right. Here's where I've heard that statement used when head coaches, when I talk to a head coach about a prospective assistant coach mm-hmm. and the head coach says, yeah, I'm, I'm asking uh, Peter to be my assistant. Oh, why? He knows the game. And my reaction to that is universally the same. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> what, what answer do, they, do you get when you ask that? I'm curious. Well, some, I mean, it can vary. It's, uh, well, he's, he's coached at this level before. Okay, that's fine. Uh, well, he played junior. That's not so fine. Hence, refer, please refer back to statement number one that we dealt with earlier. Yes. Um, he's, uh, I've coached with him for five years. He wants to come back and work with me again. Okay, that's fine. He took uh, he took his development one two years ago. Nah, that's not fine. <laughs> you know, uh, how many years has he coached? Because this is uh, let's say Bantam Double A or U fourteen Double A or something. Tier two boys or tier one girls. Um, he knows the game means. Can you narrow it down a bit? Does he know about teaching progressions? Does he understand how to teach principles versus systems? What goes into a segment? Oh, he's going to be my assistant. Yeah, but that's kind of an important role. You know, I'd like you to provide a little bit more information. I'm also fishing for what the coach can provide. Does the coach understand, you know, what the meaning of the statement is? It's interesting because the process you just went through there, and it's something I've read about in the past, and I've tried to use it more in regards to questioning. 
like I said, it's that response, um, that initial response of, well, you know, he's played the game or he knows the game. He knows the game. He, yeah, he knows the game. Like it's, to me, it just, it, it just, that just further shows the superficiality of it. And you need to drill down and ask further qualifying questions. Yes. To try to test their depth of knowledge because it's just, it's, again, it's like a cliche. It's unoriginal. Nobody cares. And it's just kind of a, you know, uh, a comment to diffuse your question and, and move on because it's not important to them. And it is important. And this is why we're asking these questions. So like they say, the thing that I read like a few years ago was if you ask a question, be prepared to ask three more or the same question three more times because each time you ask it and you keep coming back and you're repetitive, you're going to, the other person is going to be like, well, I just answered it. So maybe I have to answer it a different way. And maybe they're going to give you a little bit more knowledge and understanding on their part as to why they answered that. And so in three questions, now you drill down. Okay, well, I need help because I'm not strong on this and this at this level. This guy's got experience at this age. He's got a certification. Um, he's got a track history worth working with success with this age. Okay, so why didn't you just tell me that in the first place? It, it applies as well to people who want to be involved at the administrative levels in an organization, uh, yes. not just coaches. You know, they, somebody wants to be on the board and they say to you, yeah, I'm going to run for the, to be on the board. Okay. Well, why? Well, it hasn't functioned too well. And they've screwed up the scheduling or the finances or, you know, the development or whatever. Um, and why do you want to run for the board? Aside from that, well, I know the game. Well, what do you mean you know the game? Well, my kids have been, my two kids have been in the game since they were five years old. You know, they're now 12 and 14. So I know the game. I mean, I know what it's about. Oh, well, then. <laughs> well, you drill down and, and maybe you can find out that there is a personal agenda because their kid is still in the game. You well, know, there's always words. a personal agenda. Yes. You know, you're allowed to have, um, you know, currently sitting um, parents on the board and maybe they're on there because like say, they want to make sure that they, maybe they're on the coach selection committee then to make sure that their kid gets a good coach or they're on the evaluation committee. And well, I want to make sure my kid gets a, a fair, air quote evaluation and maybe they can influence that evaluation or maybe they can influence what coach they're going to get or you know who knows i mean it it, it, it might not be so nefarious but you know there's always a, a personal agenda there somehow i think people initially get involved on boards perhaps for that kind of reason they want to improve something that affected their kids or improve something that affected them when they were coaching um, or their neighbor's kid or their sister's kid or you know um, and maybe that's why they start, but then after four or five years, you know, they're now well ensconced in a board and, and, you know, there are no term limits. I know of an association where there are people been on the board for 20 years, 30 years. Um, but still, you know, we're talking about not just being a member of a board, but anybody involved in, in minor hockey, when they answer that, that, that woman knows the game, it just doesn't mean anything. It drives me crazy when I hear that, you know, what, what do you, what part of the game do they know? Do they understand coaching? They're going to be involved with something on development. Do they understand what 
what coaching is about. They're going to be understand. They they're going to be involved with finances. Well, he's a chartered accountant. Oh, okay, that's fine. He's a chartered accountant. No more be said. It needs to be added to that to that statement because an accountant would have a pretty good handle on what finances are all about. Not fundraising, but finances. Agreed. I'll, I'll move to um, a Monty Python-esque answer for you to keep in the theme with your introduction. Yes. With faulty towers. When Sybil oh. says to Basil, "Say no more. Say right. no more. Say no more." Yes. All right. Now we're going to get to the to the third one here, Dean, which is the um, the piece de resistance, as we say. The development killer statement number three. We've always done it this way. Doing a drum roll. I don't know if you can hear it in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's my all time favorite uh, of cliches, and it's it's one that I use in in my um, my coaching courses. Um, you know, it's <laughs> we've always done things that way or this way. I mean, it's such a you use the term drill killer at the start. Um, it's it just it just expresses such fixed mindset in that I'm so adverse to change and I'm so happy in my comfort zone. I, I don't want to get out of it. I don't want to even discuss it. It's just, it's like a conversation killer. We've always done things this way, you know, and that suggests that the way they've always done things is a good way. And I'm not talking be. about, yeah, I'm not talking about minor hockey associations or boards. I mean, it could be a coach who says, Oh, I've, I've, I've always started a practice with this. I've always done that flow drill. I've always finished with board to board, you know, gut busters for five minutes. I've always done it this way. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a wide ranging, it could be applied in a wide range of um, environments, right? By, mm -hmm. by, by individuals, by, by boards, by associations, by NSOs, doesn't matter. It's sure. It's kind of a fallback. I, I think like a safety valve sometimes. And it's, um, that's the one statement that really, I feel like, you know, somebody just slaps you when I hear that statement, because I'm going like my, my ears perk up at me. Like, okay, well, well, why would you say that? What are you saying this in regards to? And again, then that leads to not only my radar is up, but now I, I realize I need to ask way more questions and I've got to ask some good questions to try to drill down under this case. So if you've always done it this way, why have you always done it this way? Like when did, when did this way come into existence and why did it come into existence? How many years ago was that? And does it need to be changed? Maybe it doesn't need to be changed, but let's, I want to, I want to know, I want to investigate. Don't just explain away everything by one, you know, oversimplified phrase. You know, that statement, um, the very pithy epithet, you cannot discover new oceans until you leave the shore. Sure. Yeah. However, what if the person is not interested or the board or the group or the branch is not interested in discovering new oceans? They're just rediscovering the old oceans. <laughs> you know, they, they just can't be bothered. When we're talking about the development of a, of a hockey program, which is really what this is about, uh, you just don't get better. You just don't. Can't. Definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing, expecting different results. And, and yes. I, I love your analogy of 
not leaving sight of the shore because I, I was on a board for four years out here in hockey and, and another for four years in soccer. So just given that, hey, Dean must know boards, right? You know, turning it on myself. But what I found uh, with, with both of them, like you said, they're rediscovering old oceans. And I think there's such incredible value on a, in a board setting, um, the role of a past president. Um, typically out here, what I've found is that you're in a role, elected in a role for two years. Half the board is on even years, half the board's on odd years. And so, you know, you come up for re-election and so it's, it's staggered. So you don't want to have too much of a brain drain uh, at any one time. And I think that's a wise thing. Uh, you know, again, I don't know how big, you know, boards can vary in total size. Ours was only, I think, maybe seven people, you know, usually an odd number. Uh, I've heard of bigger and smaller boards. Um, but I really found that we were reinventing the wheel over and over. It was like Groundhog Day. And our past president, when I came in, was past president name only, never once came to a meeting and didn't return a lot of phone calls and emails, you know, if any, and really just wanted to wash his hands entirely of it and just kind of, well, good luck. So we didn't have, we didn't have that telescope so that we could move farther from the shore, but then still look back and know that we were on the right trail or a compass. We couldn't take readings from the stars. We had no idea. We were just adrift. And, and I think that because of that, we didn't want to deviate too far from the shore. We just kept rediscovering the old oceans. And I think in a, in a board setting or anything like, a, you know, or it could be, I don't know how it would apply necessarily to provincial organization or, or higher, but I'm sure there's some overlap here with decision makers, you know, when they leave and, and, and do they all leave at once or, you know, how do you, how do you do these things, this governance? But it's so important to have that knowledge, that historical knowledge of how things have, have unfolded and was it good or bad? And then how would we take them and tweak them and try to continue to move them better and forward so we can get farther away from the shore? We don't have to keep repeating the same, covering the same ground or repeating the same mistakes. Because when, you know how many people go back and look in the, uh, the minutes and how good are the minutes? Nobody wants to go back and read a bunch of minutes. Like I, I understand. And that's why it's important if you have a past president or people who've been on the board for a while, you know, for them to stick up their hand and say, hey, wait a minute. I remember we did this like five years ago. Like I'm the longest serving on the board. And this is, this is what happened. And this is how it turned out. So we can decide to do the same thing. You know, we have to vote on it. But I'm just telling you, I've seen this. And this is my perspective is what's happened. And that can help make better informed decisions. So when I you talk about that continuity, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking here with reference to development, but when you yeah. look at other components that organizations deal with, such as fundraising, uh, hosting tournaments, you know, the, the, that sponsorship, the people who are involved in those kinds of roles and they find that, well, the fundraising has fallen off. It doesn't matter the reason. The fundraising has fallen off. We only made $5,000 from fundraising efforts last year. We have to find new ways new approaches to do our fundraising in order to get $10,000, which is really what we need to make certain programs function. 
So that means they have to open up their minds and look at, all right, how do we double the amount of money we bring in? What do we need to do in the community to bring in more money to do whatever we want to do in our development programs? But in development, there seems to be a satisfaction that, well, we've had these people doing this, or we've had coaches doing this, or we've had this coach coaching the same group for six years. Why change? You know, there's been no real issue. There's been, there have been no real complaints. The teams are still, you know, at a winning percentage of let's say 600. So then it becomes a bit of a value judgment. Does, isn't it Dean that what constitutes the kind of change that we would want in a development program that would make that statement, we've always done it this way, uh, irrelevant. I think there's a couple of things you hit on. You just talked about a winning percentage of a coach or a team, and that being a possibly a, a like a performance metric as far as yes. whether or not you're going to bring them back or not. Right. In a development program that does go back to values because is it about yeah. winning? And I don't know what right. age it's, it's hypothetical, but it doesn't matter if you win at U10, doesn't matter if you win at U8, doesn't matter when you at U14, maybe a little bit more than U8 and U10, but really truly doesn't matter. So that's in a competitive program, not necessarily a host league program, which is somewhat different. Yeah, no, and I get it. But I mean, if you have a coach who's somewhere for six years and they're at a 600, uh, whatever winning percentage, um, if it's about development, I think there's got to be different metrics. Um, not, it's not always about the winning and, and, and I'm not saying um, that I'm trying to minimize the winning either, but it's just, you know, it, it almost comes back to what's the mission statement and values of the organization. And then, you know, how do you go about evaluating people and do you bring them back or not? And that's not kind of what we're going down on that road. But I think the, um, <laughs> that whole mission statement piece and the values, it comes back to that board. Um, and that's how you start to look at all these things, like the fundraising, whatever. And we're talking about development here, though. That's our number one focus in the podcast. So how do you tell if your kids are developing? Like, what are the metrics? And so I think then that the association would need to look more closely to define those in conjunction with fitting into their values and then moving it forward that direction. And so we've always done it this way. Okay, good. Do you have a mission statement? Does it need to be updated? How often do you look at it? Is it and maybe it is fine. I don't know. I, I've had this conversation actually with Wally Kozak the last couple of weeks about the importance of mission statements and ethics and coaching. And, and when I went into our board, we didn't have a mission. Like there's nothing on the website. And I can't remember how long it took. It might have taken almost a year, maybe more, to get a volunteer board to get together to try and hammer it out. It was a very informal process. I think it, it could have been done better in hindsight, but that's that's hindsight. Um, but I'm, I, to my recollection, there is one now, and it's up. And I said, well, this needs to guide everything, you know, from the fundraising to the development. So let's make sure we're on the same page, and we should interview all the stakeholders or give them a chance to share that and then let's move forward and so I, I think you know governance whatever you want to call it regarding development it's a dangerous statement we've always done it this way like are you not annually 
re-examining or biannually re-examining what you're doing are you evaluating your coaches every every you know half and then like at the halfway point and at the end of the season i mean these are things that you know how do you measure development i mean i don't know i began this this third segment here about we've always done it this way by mentioning a coach who does the same kinds of drills the same openings the same warm-ups the same finishes the same flow drills um from year to year even though the kids may be older may be stronger different level but you know i've always done it this way so it can apply to coaches too so i i know that when i'm teaching coaches at coaching clinics or seminars or discussions i challenge them never do the same thing the same way twice ever 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 you may have a, a favorite drill, or as my friend Rick Laduker, Laduker says, learning opportunity. Yes, learning opportunity. You may have a favorite drill, but you can tweak that in any number of ways. I call them drill templates, where you have a certain approach that is the foundational element of a drill. When you move pylons, when you shrink the space or increase the space, add a certain level of resistance, you've actually changed the drill entirely. So now you are not doing it the same way but the kids are not doing it the same way. So you can't become stale because you're challenging yourself to be more creative. And by challenging yourself to be more creative, you're challenging the kids to be more creative and you're forcing them into a, a different level of thinking. Nonlinear pedagogy, like you're just manipulating the constraints and that's what good coaches will do. Yes. Um, and, and you can repeat the same thing, exactly the same, for a period of time to help get repetitions in or certain things of be mindful of your level yes. and you do need to adjust it's it's like a training metric i mean if you lifted the same weight in the same sequence at the same time every day you would get strong and mobile to a point but then after that diminishing returns you're just right you're just in a constant plateau right you're never gonna you know move out of that comfort zone or get through that plateau so, um, yeah, I mean, you've got to be able to be adaptable as a coach to that individual and to that group. And like you said, the guy who coaches the same way in the same sequence every year, you know, for six years. Well, good. It's working. But there was a saying, and I'll, I'll probably screw it up. Hmm. Let's say you did it for six years. Are, do you have six years of coaching experience now? Or do you have one year repeated six repeated times? Repeated six times, right, yes. You know, and so where's the growth in that coach? Like where's right. the um right the 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 risk taking, where's the confidence to try something a little bit different to see if he gets better or not? Maybe he or she doesn't, but you know, she can go back and and make an adjustment. And you know, coaching is about a an evolution of adjustments, right? I I see it that way anyway. Like once you get to something you do have a tendency to stick with it, but then maybe it's not so much a drastic change, but you manipulate the space, you manipulate the time. There's some variable that you can play with and you're looking for a, a master recipe as a chef, but you can, you know, fine tune a few ingredients here and there. And, and maybe your the drastic changes aren't there anymore, but you're, you're, you're narrowing down what works for you for that age and that level and that particular team. Most people in the coaching world are well acquainted with uh, John Wooden and his basketball program at UCLA back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And one of his uh, statements 
um, well, the last, I think it was the last four or five words in the statement was repeat, 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 re or repetition, 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 yeah. which with college athletes, you know, working on a certain type of jump shot might be applicable with children in hockey, working on their outside edge on their left foot in order to be able to do proper crossover turns to the left has merit to be able to repeat that skill a number of times. But we've got to be careful that in a recreational environment, you know, learn fun, learn, return, baby. Have you heard that before? That in a rec yeah. In a recreational environment, we've got to be careful that the repetition is not turning kids off while we are so bent on making sure that they get that one component down pat, which may be an integral component, but I agree. And I think that, so when I say that the repetition could be important, like I don't think of that in terms of technique drills, although I, I could, I was just thinking my own practices where I have the same activities in small area games that I will repeat over and over and over again, manipulating the constraints based on where I think the individual or the, the group of players are that are participating in it. So, um, there's always room to get better in those situational decision-making contexts. And even though the, the rules of engagement and the boundaries are the same, potentially, and the spacing and the rules, the problems that they're going to face in there are going to be ever-changing. There's not going to be any exact same situation based on just the fact that it's, it's a game-like scenario. So it's contextual. It forces the decision-making. And so there are going to be similar principles of play involved, but how exactly the defender comes on him or how far away that loose puck is in relation to the rest of the playing surface and what the rules are and how you solve each individual one of those, that's, that's ever-changing. It's chaos, but, and you're trying to make sense. There's a little bit of pattern recognition and the application of those principles of play but it's very dynamic and very changeable and unpredictable to a point. So well, which I, is what the sport, well, that's the sport, isn't it? It's it, dynamic. It's the sport yes. and it's, and it's repetitive, repetitive. And that's what, what it is in a game. So I try to maximize those in my own personal practice. And so even though to an outsider go, well, Dean's doing the same thing again, he's like a one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one Spartan box, a two-on-one -on -one Spartan box, whatever. Yes. But you just don't have that depth of understanding about, all the nuts and bolts that go behind it and what we're trying to um, draw out of it, you know, we're highlighting and what our feedback is going to be on specific elements of that. So repetition, repetition, repetition. Yes. But I'm not asking to go around a pylon every day at the same time in the same direction, looking down, removing their field of vision from time and space. Where's my teammates? Where's my, um, opposition, where's my net, where am I in time and space? I'm not reinforcing the head down. No, I don't like to me, that's, that's the danger of repetition because it's non-contextual and you're defeating right. the purpose. Yeah. I would change the expression to uh, repeat, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it. I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's good. You, sh you should put a copyright on that one. I'll, I'll work on that right after we're done. Absolutely. Um, that, you know, I've, I've seen coaches do, for instance, uh, a breakout drill they're bent on break we got to do breakouts we got to do breakouts well 
Yes, you do, but a breakout comes from a from a change of puck possession. Uh, and there's innumerable numbers of things that, that happen during a breakout that don't involve just going into a corner up the boards and getting a pass on the fly. You know, forwards, like your kids just don't do that in a game. You know, they're 12 years old. They may be very smart players. They just don't have the wherewithal. And they're, you know, you're talking about 11 hockey players inside the blue line. 11 kids, and, and most of them are out of position because they can't figure it out. And you're trying to do this drill with three kids. You know, you can't make it work with three. How do you think you're going to make it work with five? You know, that, that kind of thing. Well, we've Mike always Johnson. done it this way. No, oh, geez. Mike Johnson, I, I, when I was at Cardiff, it was 2018 in, in the fall. And I remember, I think I pulled up some YouTube clip of Mike Johnson because he's with Portland and he was, um, he was, he does these things on LinkedIn and, and on, on YouTube where. You, right you're talking about Mike Johnston or Johnson? Yeah, John Stun. John Stun. Yeah, yes. The, yes. The, from the national team. And, right. uh, and so, you know, 30 drills in 30 days, he's doing on LinkedIn or something right now or YouTube for Portland, but he's been doing this stuff for years. Right. He's, he's been facilitating, giving back and um, always looking to get better. Always looking to, you know, what can I learn? Like Mike's very open-minded. I really, really enjoyed working with him that year and, and quite a prankster too, you know, dry, but very good sense of humor. Uh, Maritimer. He, um, he said in this clip and I'll, I'll never forget it. And I, I, I wanted to phone him and thank him. He showed a video recording of Portland trying to break out under pressure, a game footage. And, you know, he stopped it a couple of times and he was talking about it. And essentially what he said, the reader's digest version was instead, the um, the puck came, I think, I can't even remember, but it's, let's say it came around to the D-man and he was caught on the wall and the near side winger was under pressure. The D had come down to pre-pinch. Um, his his uh, partner, he couldn't do a D to D pass. His partner was engaged or unavailable or be behind a guy. The far side winger, the net was in the way, so he couldn't make a direct pass all the way across to his far side winger is high risk. And I mean, it would have been a flip and hope for the best. The only guy that he could possibly make a pass to is a centerman in the slot because the centerman came down low, but there was nobody nearby him. So the guy made the pass, the D made the pass to the center and then the center turned like his head was up and then, you know, started to make his way out of the zone. And then everybody adjusted off of that. And Mike's comment was, how many coaches say don't don't pass through the middle don't pass to the slot now regardless that that was the center or and it wasn't his d partner it didn't matter who it was he's passing to a man in the slot okay but that guy wasn't guarded he wasn't checked there's was nobody within 10 feet of him the d man was under pressure from a four checker either he eats the puck and absorbs the hit or he tries to deke him or he tries to make the pass those were his three options he chose to make a pass to the D. The um, Mike said, here's the scenarios that can happen. Maybe the D fumbles the puck and it goes to another guy and they get a shot on net. And actually, in, in hindsight, I think that's what happened is the D man, it, it, the puck, it was tape to tape, but the puck hit something on the ice, bounced over a stick, went by him and the guy got a shot. They didn't score. And, and Mike say, now the typical coach would say, I'm going to give this D man crap for making a pass to the middle of the ice. You know, he could have eaten it. He could have tried to decom, 
but he made the pass. But he said, I didn't, because this guy had the wherewithal. He had his head up. He saw that this was a possible outlet. He made it. And even if he would have made a bad pass, right, and it went to somebody else or it cleared the zone, whatever, you know what? It tells me as a coach, at least my D-man has his head up. He's reading possible options, and he chose one. And it was actually a pretty good choice, even though it hit a piece of ice and bounced over the stick and it resulted in a shot on net, even if it resulted in a goal, it still wasn't a bad decision. But how many guys would just go back to the cliches and platitudes in hockey because I coach junior, we've always done it this way. You never pass to the middle, right? And so I think it was a great illustration of, of that, of it's not black and white, there's gray, there's shades of gray. And so in all those statements that you've talked about today, Richard, we've, we've said they're an oversimplification. They won't always apply to every circumstance. You need to ask more questions and drill down to find the true intent. The dynamism of the game pretty much forces us, if you have any kind of open mind at all, you know, the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it's open to um, that. To force us to make decisions that uh, in basketball or baseball or some other sports, which are a little bit more, um, not linear, but uh, more absolute or or lean more towards absolutes, uh, just not possible. Uh, There are no absolutes in hockey, I don't think. You know, you mentioned one passing. Pardon me? That's an absolute, isn't it? It's an absolute. Absolutely right. Yes. There are no absolutes in hockey. There's just too many things that happen in the course of a game where you, you say, you know, don't ever go in front of your net. Don't ever pass into the middle. Uh, don't ever do this. Don't ever do that. There's no such thing as don't ever, you know, like finish, you got to finish your check. Got to finish your check. We've always done it this way on this team. We've always finished our check. Even if it takes me 15 feet out of position, does that make sense? Oh. Again, that's just, that just reflects that oversimplification and a lack of deeper understanding. Right, right. So have we made those three statements? I played junior. He knows the game. We've all always done it this way. Have we made them dead, defunct, no more, and cease to be bereft of life, kicked the bucket, shuffled off their mortal coil, made them ex-development killers? I love, I love Monty Python. Indeed, yeah. indeed, I think we have. I just hope okay. that other people take it to heart. Hope so. All right, Dino. Thanks again. We'll be talking as usual. You bet. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.